0: Now, it's always a pleasure to uh, uh, fill in for Pastor Rob on vacation, might say a needed vacation at that. And for the next two Sundays, we're going to look at this matter of Jesus' heart. And where is Jesus' heart? If I were to ask you to describe his heart, can you do it? How would you do it? How would you describe it? But here we see Jesus' heart for the sinful and the suffering— and that'll be our focus for the next couple of weeks. Matthew chapter eleven, uh, verses twenty-eight to thirty, is the biblical passage. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can to turn to Matthew eleven, verses uh, twenty-eight to thirty. But before we go there, I'm going to ask you a question, and then just make a comment about another verse of Scripture before we delve into Matthew eleven, twenty-eight to, uh, to thirty. I want you to think of a time, and I'm sure all of you can, when something happened to you, and uh, you were either deeply hurt, or you were guilty, or you lost something or someone that meant the world to you, and you asked yourself the question, Lord, why did you allow that to happen to me? Why did why did that happen? My, why did you allow me to do what I did? Couldn't you have stopped me? And now I'm living with the consequences of it. And usually we go to prayer and we ask the Lord, Lord, could you kind of let me have an idea of why this happened? And after a while, you don't get an answer. And so finally, you kind of come and resign yourself to a A scripture verse, like on the screen, Isaiah 55, uh, in verse 8. For my thoughts, God speaking, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And the idea here is we kind of just shrug our shoulders a little bit. And we say, well, I don't understand it. I can't get it. I don't know why it happened. I wish it wouldn't have happened. I wish none wouldn't have done that. Whatever the case is, and we say, but God knows. His thoughts are not my thoughts, and they're way far uh, uh, beyond mine. Now, what I want you to do as you think about that, because we've probably all used that verse in that way. It's kind of like we dwell on God's providential care or God's wisdom of sovereignty in what he does. And that is all true, but that's not what Isaiah is talking about. Remember this, anytime you study the Bible, a text taken out of context is a pretext, okay? So you've got to... NARROW YOUR FOCUS ON THAT VERSE OF SCRIPTURE AS YOU ATTEMPT TO SAY, WHAT DID GOD MEAN BY THAT? YOU'VE GOT TO LOOK AT THE SURROUNDING CONTEXT, OR I PROMISE YOU, YOU PROBABLY WON'T ARRIVE AT A RIGHT CONCLUSION. NOW, AS WE LOOK AT THE CONTEXT HERE, WE GO BACK TO ISAIAH 55. NOW WE READ THE PRECEDING TWO VERSES. NOW LOOK AT THEM IN VERSES 6 AND 7. SEEK THE LORD WHILE HE MAY BE FOUND. CALL UPON HIM WHILE HE IS NEAR. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Then he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Do you see that it's not really talking so much about providential care or divine sovereignty over God superintending what he allows to happen in your life? The context is dealing with the heart of God that is a merciful and compassionate heart. And he's reaching out to us, and he says, seek the Lord while you may be found. Let the wicked forsake his way, unrighteous man his thoughts, let him return to the Lord. And so he tells us what to do at the beginning, seek the Lord, but then he gives the reason. And the reason is that he may have, God may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now, I want you to think about how you have viewed God in your Christian life, how you have viewed God, especially when it came to anything of an unholiness or unrighteous deeds that you have done, failures. I want you to think about God also in the realm of. Didn't necessarily do anything wrong, but something happened, and you sure didn't like what happened. You didn't like who you lost. You didn't like saying goodbye to a loved one. And you work with that, and you try to find a purpose in it. And God is saying all through here that he is not like man. His thoughts are far beyond man. How do men respond when you do something against them? You hurt somebody. You lie to somebody. You walk out on somebody. You betray somebody. You sin against somebody. How does the normal human being react to that? He gets angry. He wants retaliation. He wants to get even. And if you did that to me, I'll do twice as much to you. And then right in the middle of that, God says, but My ways aren't your ways, and my thoughts aren't your... In other words, God doesn't act like that. How does God act when I am a sinful, failing human being? He acts in compassion and in mercy to me. Did you know God never does anything in your life without it coming from his compassionate, merciful heart? You say, well, doesn't God get angry at all those things and the wars and all these things and people get misused and raped and children get uh, uh, not taken care of? Of course he does. But he doesn't focus it on that individual. He focuses it on the sin, the sin nature, Satan, the fall of man, and everything that brought all this about. But his heart for you and me No matter where we've been or what we've done, it's always one of compassion and mercy. And that's true because some people, what do they do? They try to make a distinction between God of the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament. No, that's not what he's doing. God is the same. And the same compassion of Jesus that we're going to see in Matthew 11, which we're going to turn to now, is the same compassion in God who ministered through Isaiah and gave those wonderful words about my ways are not your ways uh, in center. John Calvin hit it right, I think. He said, there's nothing that troubles our consciences more than when we think that God is like ourselves. We tend to humanize God. And make him just think just like you and I do. And God says, no, my thoughts are far way uh, beyond yours. So how do we picture God when we've really blown a big time in life? Here's what. I don't want you to see an angry God about to hit you upside the head or smack you. I want you to see the father and the prodigal son, even as Jesus embraces you with open arms. So every time you fail, every time you start looking in the past and seeing something you wish wasn't there, something you hadn't done, something you feel guilty about, I want you to see that picture where he is reaching out to you, come unto me, he says, come unto me and you'll see how merciful and compassionate. And so with these outstretched arms, we come to Matthew chapter 11. And notice what Jesus says. By the way, I don't know why, but I don't ever remember preaching on these verses in 58 years. But I can't get them out of my mind since January. I've been working on this message for about eight months. And it started back in January. God put these verses on my heart. and I just can't get them out of my mind. Look at these wonderful verses. And remember that picture of Jesus reaching out with outstretched arms. Come to me, verse 28. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, the first thing you notice here, obviously, is that there's an invitation. But what I want you to notice here before we really get into the, uh, into the meat of this is this. This is the only time, as far as I know, from Genesis to Revelation, in the entire Bible, this is the only place you can go where Jesus tells you what he is like inside. Now, I know what other people, I know what disciples said about him, I know what the enemy said about him, what a lot of people said about him, government rules said about him. This is the only place that if I were to ask Jesus, Jesus says, I want to be like you. Now, what are you like in the depth of your heart? This is the only place. And that's where he, he, he takes those words, and he says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Whenever you think about Jesus, omnipotent, omnipresent, etc., cetera, what et well, Jesus wants you to know about him, because he says in himself, I am gentle, and I am lowly in heart, and I'm inviting you with open arms to come to me. So the first thing you see, there's, there's an invitation, because he says in verse 28, I will give you rest. Now, you think about that claim come to me, all, anyone and everyone, any person who is indeed a person. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how evil others might say you are, Jesus always has outstretched arms. And he says, come unto me. I was in jail on Tuesday ministering to a group of uh, the men I meet with every Tuesday. And they've been in there, they're in there for bad crimes. They're, they're bad. Some of them aren't going to see the light of day ever. So I asked them as we're studying John's view of discipleship, what would give Jesus the right to say to Peter, Matthew, John, Andrew, whomever, say, follow me? What gives him the, why would anyone just leave everything behind and follow him? and a couple of them spoke up just like that. He says, it all depends on who he is. And I said, that's exactly right. And only the God of the universe, the eternal word, who spoke the word in and this world came into existence, could then give that promise of rest, which is so audacious, simply with the words, come to me if there were any other person in human history who said that, I'm getting a little feedback here, if there's anyone else that would say that in human history, he would be like a, a megalomaniacal lunacy. No one would pay attention to him. But if Jesus is who he claims to be, then the word Became flesh, our Creator. His simple promises implies a promise behind it, more than sufficient to lift what weighs us down. Which begs the question: Does any is anything weighing you down this morning? Any guilt of the past weighing you down? Any sins you just hope, by God's grace, no one will ever know about? Things you've done. Or has it been another type of burden just weighing you down? And you came in today, and when Jesus says, I'll give you rest, you're sitting there, you came in, and you sat down, and you said, I'm just plain tired. And we're not talking about physical tired. We're talking about accumulation of things normally that build up. And boy, the joy is gone, the peace is gone, there's something missing. Then we hear Jesus say, Come unto me, and I will give you rest because I've got the power to do it. Now, I want you to notice in this verse here, 28, there are two kinds of people. And then we're going to see there's two kinds of rest. Now, who are the two kinds of people? We'll pick them out in verse 28. All who labor, that's the first group. And then all those who are heavy laden, that's the second group. Now, who are the heavy, uh, uh, those who are laboring? Most commentators would agree, and I agree as well, that that first group in the context is speaking of the religious people. Could be someone that came in this morning into our service. And you just have a sense that you know he's a good God and he's a holy God and someday he's going to (laughs) bring me to account I'm going to answer to that God. So I'm just going to try to be as good as I can be. I'm just going to keep on trying to do good and do what I should do, even though I know I fail. And you know, that's of the people that the Jewish people to whom Jesus was talking right here. And the Pharisees had come along and what did they do? They added the yoke of bondage upon the people upon the Jewish people. They kept adding more rules. And if you have 10 commandments that God gives them, they then make up 613 commandments that further amplify the 10 commandments. You couldn't do this. You couldn't do that. You could not take up your mat on. You couldn't, if your uh, oxen fell into the ditch, you couldn't get him out on the Sabbath. You can't even heal a blind man on the Sabbath. No matter what you do, it's wrong. And they were constantly battering down. These are the people, I think, that he's talking about. These are the ones who are laboring. And they got tired under that laboring. Some of you were brought up in a system like that. You were told you weren't, you had to keep striving. You had to keep doing. And then somewhere along the way, you heard the gospel of the grace of God. That God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And if a person simply looks on him and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, he finished it all on the cross, and he gives you the gift of eternal life. He forgives all of your sins, and with open arms, he welcomes you into the family of God. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ is offering to those who are laboring. But there's a second class of people, and those are the ones who are heavy laden, Who are the heavy laden people? When you examine those words, I would say they come out to mean those, oh, some people talk about uh, sowing your wild oats, Um, giving yourself to wild living. Their nights are empty rounds of empty pursuits with empty people, and every day is an endless battle with the hangover of guilt and the hangover of despair, and you just get tired of it. Remember, that was my life when I came to trust Christ as my Savior. I was just tired of it, and I was a young 21-year-old veteran, but I was tired of it. I was tired of just meaningless things going on. And then I remember hearing, you must be born again. And God loves you, and God is merciful. And I trusted him as my Savior, and I was born again. And all of a sudden, and when I say all of a sudden, I mean all of a sudden the burden was lifted because Jesus bore that burden and your burden of sin on Calvary, and he promises to bring us the rest that we so desperately need. And speaking of rest, I want you to notice as there are two kinds of people, there are also two kinds of rest. Notice what we're talking about, these two kinds of rest. As you look at verse 28, he says, come unto me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest. You see those two words rest? So I've circled both of them, then I've drawn a line to connect them. But they're not meaning the exact same thing. The word rest is the same, and it's the rest that God wants you to have. But you'll notice here a, a couple of things. In verse 28, you have what is called what I call the imputed rest. It's a rest that is given or imputed to you freely. You trust Christ the Savior. You're born again into the family of God. And then there's your name, sinner under condemnation, life full of sins and trespasses. And over that name, God puts imputed rest. You are totally forgiven past, present, future sins. And God imputes the righteousness of Christ and his rest to your account. And that happens at a split second of where you pass from death unto life. But secondly, you'll notice in verse 29, there's another rest. Notice he says, now take my yoke upon you, learn from me, and you will find rest. That's what I call an imparted rest. So when we talk about an imparted rest, imparted rest, it's dependent on quite another activity. Notice that Jesus adds there in verse 29, take my yoke upon you. Do you want to continue to have this rest that was imputed to you? Now, do you want that on a practical giving level? Jesus says, here's how you do it. Take my yoke upon you. And so there's an initial act by which the life of Christ begins in us. And that's when we're born of the spirit, which leads to a process then that Paul talks about. And sooner or later, we've all been there. If we know the Lord, there comes a time in our life after I'm a Christian I'm reading or I'm listening to a message or a, uh, listening to a sermon, whatever it might be, and all of a sudden I hear words like, do you not know that you are not your own? You're bought with the price. Don't you know the Holy Spirit of God indwells in you? And then that pivotal verse, Romans 12, one and 2, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a lo- that aren't your own anymore, Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to the sage, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is a good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I remember that as clearly as the as as the time I was born again. And I remember hearing: my life isn't my own. It belongs totally to the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. And so that then begins that process for the rest of my life. I haven't shared this before, I don't think. But every morning there's certain verses I quote. And one of them at the very beginning is that Romans 12. And I usually am sitting in my lace boys right before I open my Bible in my prayer journal. And I look down at my feet and my toes, and I start right there. I said, Lord. My body's yours, and I just go all the way up my body to the top of my head. I said, I want you to own it today. I want you to use it today for your glory. It's totally yours. I don't want to be conformed to this age. I want to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. That's why I need to get in to the Word of God and into the worship of God. I like this sometimes to marriage. We all know the story. Boy meets girl. Bride moots meets groom at the altar, and uh, then It begins. Now, for the rest of your life, there's a commitment. And that commitment is you're going to love each other. You're going to stay together. You're going to, until death do us part, whether it's sickness, health, uh, poverty, or whatever it is, I am committed to you as my spouse for the rest of my life until I die. And uh, that's kind of like the Christian life. So we come to the cross that's born again into the family of God. Now I become a member of the bride of Christ. And now for the rest of my life, until the Lord comes, then I'm going to be committed to him. And that's that rest life that is imparted to me as I, as I live in union with the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is the Lord of my life. And so this is the invitation that God gives. If you have a heavy heart, a burdened heart, a sinful heart, whatever you have, come unto me, come unto me. He's not saying I'm mad at you. God's not going to get mad at you. You say, you don't know what I did. I don't have to know what you did. It's none of my business. But I can tell you right now, God's not angry at you. You say, well, what's his disposition toward me? I am compassionate and I am full of mercy. I am gentle and I am lowly of heart. That's his disposition. Not to hold you back, but to welcome you with open arms. It is his heart to be compassionate. Just like we sometimes operate out of the motivation of my sin nature, and I respond quickly in that way, and wrongly so. When God responds to us, like Isaiah, when Jesus comes to us, come to me, I'm gentle and lowly. His natural disposition is to reach out to you with loving, merciful, compassionate care. And aren't you glad? Aren't we glad for that? Because we need that all through our lives, and that keeps us with the ongoing commitment. So there's an invitation, and God gives you that invitation today. Just three words, kind of sums it all up, come unto me. Now, notice he gives us a little insight here in verse 29. Verse 29, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, From gentle and lowly in heart, you'll find rest for your souls. I think these may well be the most tender, all-encompassing, and insightful comments ever uttered by any human lips. If we put all four Gospels side by side, there are 89 chapters where four writers tell us about Jesus. But this is the only place, as I've said, where Jesus himself tells us what he is like in the innermost place of his heart and life. Notice, first of all, this rest that he's talking about involves carrying a yoke. Now, it's really interesting, isn't it? When you, when you look at that verse 29, he ends verse 28, I will give you rest. Then in verse 29, he says, take my yoke upon you, and you're going to find more rest. That's very interesting because you wonder, well, is he promising us a rest? Well, Of course. Well, then why is he telling to take his yoke upon us? After all, what is a yoke? A yoke is a is a is placed on a burden of beast in order to do work. Jesus, take my yoke upon you. Well, you're asking me to rest or you're asking me to work? You're asking me to trust or you're asking me to work? Which is it? And Jesus is glad we asked that question because remember... It is all based upon who he is. And when he goes through that gospel, of John, and he makes seven stupendous claims, he says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the door. I'm the shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Every Jew that heard him speak those words knew what he was saying. Because they went back 1,500 years earlier, and there was a prophet, the greatest prophet of Israel, called to deliver the children of Israel, God, whom shall I say hath sent me? And the Lord God answered, I am that I am hath sent you. That's the name of God. And now 1,500 years later, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only Father, full of grace and truth, and the Word became flesh. Now he says, I am. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the door. I'm the shepherd. And he could only make that claim because he was fully God and fully man. And that's why they tried to stone him on numerous occasions, the leaders, because he said he committed blasphemy. He didn't commit blasphemy. If you say I'm God, if I say I'm God, that's blasphemy. But Jesus says I'm God, that's just the truth. And that's how people respond and need to respond to him. So what is it, Jesus? Is it rest or is it work? Jesus said there is a work for you to do. Well, then what is that work? Listen to the Bread of Life discourse. He says this in John uh, chapter 6, verse 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The work, only work you're to do in order to enter that rest and continue in that rest, the only work you can do is believe in the Lord and trust in the Lord and rely upon the Lord. So you catch this later on, on the night of his betrayal in John 15, when he looks at his disciples, leaves the upper room, and he says, abide in me, and I in you as the branch, that's you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Notice, cannot. You can bear no fruit. You can't bear any fruit. He cannot Bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine. You're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Notice he says there, you can do nothing. And you cannot bear fruit by yourself. And so what is that? that I, how do I enter into this rest? It's simply by faith. And that's why all through the New Testament, then that great book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Jacob, by faith, Sarah, by faith, by faith, by faith. That's how all of them were greatly used of God. And that's how you'll be greatly used of God as well. So Jesus invites us to take all of our burdens and sins to him for rest. But it's not just a matter of dumping everything on him like a garbage bag, but it's rather uh, dumping it off and then walking away. That's how some people think, cast your burdens upon the Lord. No, it's not that. Jesus invites the sinful and the suffering to join him, what? Take my yoke upon you. He invites you into the yoke relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and he says, my burden is light. Because all you have to do is trust me. Walk by faith. Lean on me. That old gospel song, lean on me, we know it well. It's got a powerful truth in that. He does all the work, and we get all the rest. All we're required to do is trust in him. And if that weren't enough in becoming human and dwelling among us, Jesus makes it possible for us to learn how to live by faith, which brings us to the main thought in the text, which is this rest involves appropriating the person of Jesus. Do you want me to make the life of discipleship simple for you? I mean, let's just make it as simple as we can get it. Are you ready? Because, you know, if you Google it, you'll find, oh, do these 10 lessons and do these 15 lessons and do this and do that. And it'll tell you a whole bunch of things to do. And I want you to quit doing. I want you just to listen to those simple words. Jesus says, come to me. And then in these verse, notice here, take my yoke upon you. Here it is. Learn from me. What did the disciples do? Jesus called them to be with him. They walked with him. They watched him. They observed him. They began practicing what he did. Every pupil, when he is fully taught, shall be like his teacher, Luke 6.40. Every disciple, when he is fully taught, he's going to be like his teacher. Jesus went on ascended to heaven. Disciples went out. And those who were against him, the, the Sanhedrin, the Roman officials, they took note what? That those disciples had been with Jesus. Why? They were acting just like he did. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You want discipleship? You really want discipleship? He says, then take my yoke upon you and learn from me. By the way, we've got a great theologian at Osterville Baptist Church, and I'm not talking about Pastor Rob or any elder, but uh, our office administrator, Bella, uh, she hit the nail on the head and I, she wrote something, I can't remember what I saw, but I saw what she wrote, and I caught her, asked if I could use it. But she hit the nail on the head. From Philippians 4, 7, you know the verse, the peace of God that passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And then she wrote this. This verse reminds me that peace is a gift from God. It's not something I can create on my own, but it's something that I can receive from him. Now, listen. She was spot on. When I choose to trust in him, he gives me the peace that I need to face whatever challenges come my way. You know, it's what years ago they used to call it the exchange life. And that is that, that we exchange our sins were all carried by Jesus and all of our burdens and cares, and he gives us everything we need and he never leads us to do one single thing that is not consistent with what he would do. Remember when Jesus healed the, the, the impotent man, John 5? And then he said this. He said, my fa-, they accused him, you did this on the Sabbath, you broke the Sabbath. And then what did, what did Jesus say? My father works up until now, and I work also. What was he saying? I've never done a thing apart from doing it with my father. Just imagine if every one of us in our homes and wherever we go in life, if we said, I'm doing what I'm doing because Jesus wants me to do it. Now, Jesus and I work hitherto, and I work. My Father and I work hitherto, and I work. And so, as Jesus says, learn from me. Secondly, his yoke isn't heavy because of who he is. He says, I'm gentle and I'm lowly in heart. Here's what separates Jesus from everyone else he's gentle. He's lowly. Gentle is found three other places in the New Testament. It's translated meek in Matthew 21.5 as the king is riding into Jerusalem. He's called humble. And Peter talks about the, the wife who has a gentle spirit. Those are the same words, gentle, meek, humble. Sometimes in the Greek, you cannot find one English word that does justice to the Greek word. So you have to get three words, gentle, meek, humble, to get the idea. It's the opposite of rough, hard, and violent. Keep in mind, young people, older people, children, God's not out to get you. He's out to love you into his loving arms and to take care of you and to be your shepherd. It's a beautiful terminology that is used here. And it's a very humbling thing as well. Third, the meaning of lowly in heart amplifies the gentle spirit of the Lord Jesus. It's just normally translated humble in our English Bible. But it's not just a virtue. We speak of the virtue of humility. And honest to goodness, I don't know of any quality of a person's life that attracts me to the, to themselves like the spirit of humility. I think it's the most beautiful quality of the earth. And that shouldn't surprise me now because that's what Jesus says he is. He's gently and lowly in heart. He has the spirit of humility. And so this lowly in heart then uh, amplifies the gentle spirit of Jesus. It was used by Mary, the mother of Jesus, when she was pregnant with Jesus. And she sang out in that beautiful Magnificat about the humble origin of herself. Didn't come from a kingly palace. Didn't come from a wealthy home. She was a poor teenage virgin. It was a humble origin. Paul uses this word in Romans 12, 16. He admonishes the believer, don't be proud, but associate with the lowly. Jesus said, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And is he other. He hath no form nor comeliness. There's no beauty that we should desire him. We esteemed him not. He was smitten of God, and he bore our sins. At his deepest core, Jesus is a servant, and he came to serve and not to be served because that's who he is at heart. He's gentle, he's lowly, humble origin, Poor family born into, carpenter. And when they looked at him, they said he's not to be desired. I think the main thought in all this is simply, this is what I want to take with you, above Jesus alone, is that he is accessible to us. Do You know what that means to me when I go in prisons around the world? You got murderers, rapists, mean people. I've had some, when they heard these words, just start crying uncontrollably, can't believe. You don't mean he did it for me. I understand why he did it for them. He didn't know he did it for you. He loves you. He's merciful to you. He says, come to me. Last Sunday, we were, Mira and I were having lunch with the Columbines, our missionaries, and had a couple of members from the missions committee, and Beautiful day, so a lot of people were out at the beach. Weren't a lot of people in the Olive Garden. But there was a table next to us. And, of course, there were about six of us at our table. or seven. So there were two, just uh, looked like a mother and an adult daughter, but didn't know that. But I could tell that they were listening to every word we said. If we were talking about me. You couldn't help but listen. Even if you didn't want to listen, you had to. All right? So then after we all got up and left, I walked over to the table. I lingered behind a little bit. I said, you probably heard a few things we were talking about, didn't you? They They said, yeah. I said, can I share just one thing with you? And they said, certainly. I said, no one, no one has ever loved you as much as God loves you. And if you take all the people in the world that care about you, it pales in comparison to how much God loves you. And uh, the mother looked at me and she says, Well, we're atheists. And she says, Does God love atheists? I thought, Well, that's an interesting question. Does the God I don't believe in? But I didn't get the smart, Alky. I said, Yes, he does. He really loves you. And then the young lady, she looked at me and she says, I got a question. I said, What's that? She says, Does God love Satanists? I said, he loves Satanists so much that he sent his son to die for every one of them. Now, that kind of ended our conversation. You do know, to leave him a little something to read, maybe to read it, I don't know. But I just thought to myself, people don't really know that. I love to share that a truth with people. I've had waitresses and receptionists, honest to goodness, I've had them just well with tears right behind their register. I can remember some saying almost like the exact same thing. They'd say something like that's about the kindest thing I've ever heard. Because people need to know that there's a God that loves him. He is accessible. Remember this the posture most natural to Jesus is not a pointed finger, but an open arm. Preachers have a way, do you ever notice? The pointed finger. And a lady reminded me after he sir. yeah, but there's three pointing back at you. True. But the pointed finger, that's never Jesus. His is always open arms. The pointed finger kind of separates you, alienates you. You open arms, you come together. Close it out, there's an inspiration, an invitation. There's an insight, there's an inspiration. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is like, this rest is a spiritual one, and it's one that brings us hope. I close with what Augustine said about all this. He says, the burden of our Lord's yoke can be compared to a bird's feathers. On the one hand, the bird could complain about the added weight of its wings. But on the other hand, it's the bird's wings which enables it to soar through the skies. And that's our Lord's burden that he says his yoke to take a hold of with him because he does all the work. He does all the work, and all we do is walk by faith. And, you know, it's wonderful to get up every morning out of your bed and to realize this is the day the Lord's made, and the Lord goes before you, and every day is an exciting day. Who will you bring into my life today? Who can I be a testimony to today? Who can I show the gentleness and kindness of Christ today? With whom can I serve with the spirit of humility? Lord, I want to learn of you today, and I take your yoke upon me. Now, thank you for that spiritual rest that you give. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, thanks so much. Thank you for the great grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, Yet for our sakes he became poor, that we, through that poverty, might be made rich. Help everyone here to hear the Lord saying to them, come to me. Come unto me. Open arms. Come unto me. In Christ's name, amen.